Welcome to the old market in Ho. Please welcome a man who has a strange sense of deja vu, which probably means that he is lying in the hospice bed somewhere if you listen to the last podcast and just imagining this is happening. It's Richard Herring! Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, welcome. Oh, damn, I forgot to come up with one of these. I'm going to have to ad-lib one. Welcome to Richard Herring's uh, uh, <laughs> lovely, smashing, terrific podcast. Uh, but I was uh, hanging out at the Fingerprint Maze uh, in Hove Park, you know? <laughs> Hanging out there, and one of the guys there, he called it Rehelestopus. I don't know if that's going <laughs> to catch on. I looked, I don't, you, you didn't seem very aware of the, the fingerprint. <laughs> Maze, have you seen it? It's in Hove Park. It's, uh, I, I looked up the TripAdvisor reviews. Uh, Skyverman Ed N, or Eden, I suppose it might be, said, it's not even a maze, and it's only a novelty. <laughs> uh, Chris said, it's a fingerprint you can walk around anatomically incorrect. <laughs> So that's good. Uh, look, we're going to crack more or less straight on. Uh, I'll just give you one piece of news uh, from uh, recently in Brighton, the Brighton Argus. Uh, a man who complained about 10 months of missed bins because he lived down a narrow street. Did you see this story? I don't believe what's happening. He's been awarded £50 in compensation for that. <laughs> it must have been his lucky day. 50 quid. He'll never have to work again. <laughs> and I assume he just had to 10 months of just carrying his own rubbish to the dump. Let's all do that. That's 50 quid we could have. What are we doing using bin men? It's ridiculous. That's the main news story that's happened. <laughs> Apart from, uh, as I mentioned in the last podcast, i360 losing 3.8 million pounds in a year. Well done. Well done. Well done to you, Brighton, with your rubbish London eye. <laughs> so I go round, not up and down. So I want to introduce my guest uh, this week. Uh, it's only one podcast a week, remember. He's probably best known for his appearance on the Dan and Dusty show. That's why we're all here. <laughs> Will you please welcome Stephen Grant, ladies and gentlemen. Come in. Sit down. There's a microphone and everything. There's water. Dan and fucking Dusty. Tell I, us about the Dan and Dusty show. I can't remember it. You said it was going to be obscure. It's so obscure I can't remember it. Is there puppets it, involved? It was. It was a... Pu it was a... Oh, dear. Uh, ITV... You know when ITV want to do comedy? Mm -hmm. They always think it's not enough to just do comedy. They've got to do something with it. Uh, so they decided, instead of having a comedian actually as a host, they had a pair of puppets uh, called Dan and Dusty who introduced each of the acts as puppets. And then you came on introduced by puppets. And right. It, yeah. Fucking shocking. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty poor. But anyway, um, yeah, that was that. And uh, yeah. since then, my career was whoosh. Yeah. <laughs> Genuinely, you should be pleased I'm here. Good. We are very pleased. Well, we're saying backstage, you were born and bred in Brighton, but so was your dad and, and your... And, my, and his dad and his dad and his dad. Um, Stephen Grant, my dad, Roy Grant, his dad. Uh, Ernest Grant, his dad. Henry Grant, his dad. Thomas Grant, in fact. They, he had a, um, a butcher's shop in James's Street in the late 1870s, that was like. And the reason why I know that is my father was the chairman of the Sussex Family History Group and went back and he just said, you, just, you don't get more Brighton than me. So, right. yeah. 
cut me, I bleed mung bees. <laughs> I am like... So he's one of you, unless you're not from Brighton, in which case. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I'm very Brighton. Very Brighton, yeah. yeah. And uh, you, you ever, you've you ever left Brighton to go live anywhere else? I, uh, briefly. Uh, yeah. I have, I've lived in surrounding Sussex villages from time to time. I was lived in Sayers Common briefly, and I lived in Henfield briefly. Uh, but then I keep coming back to Brighton Hope. Yeah, well, it's nice. And, you, you know, you are a huge celebrity in Brighton <laughs> Hope. You're the most famous man in Brighton. I know, it's by virtue of the room full of people going... And I walked out, what the fuck is this? But you've made, uh, well, the Comedia and the, the, the Creator yeah. Club made you very much your own. Yes, I mean, I, I mean it's, just, it's just numerics, really. I mean, being a resident compere, there aren't many resident compares left in comedy. There used to be years and years ago. Um, but um, I'm a resident compare of a comedy club that plays to a thousand people a week. So, and, and so it's just statistically likely if you live in Brighton and Hove that at some point you've been dragged down for a party or a, or a stag deal, just a night out, and you've seen me there. Um, and the reality of it is, is that a lot of people don't recognise me, or Brighton's a bit too cool for school to recognise people, until I speak and then they work out who I am, because they've right. heard my voice, because they weren't really looking, they were just listening, they were just sort of staring <laughs> on their phone waiting for the acts to come on, you know, so I mean, and then they kind of, oh yeah, it's a bloke, I recognise that voice, I just, when he stops talking, something fun happens. So I, um, so that's, that's kind of where it is, but yeah, no, I mean, over, uh, Comedia's 20th, well, the, the night I run's 20th birthday comes up in um, June, of this year, and so that'll have been 20 years of doing 200 shows a year, um, like I said, 1,000 people, well, over 1,000, about 1,200 people a week. And it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling just how famous I should fucking be. <laughs> I, it's a, realistically, what, why are you guys not fucking paying attention? I'm, I'm out there every day bleeding. No, They're just I mean, waiting for the act to come on. That's the problem. They're waiting for the act to come on. I know, that's, that's the way it works. But no, I mean, it's, uh, I, I love it, and, and it's, it's kind of weird. In comedy, you're, you're used to it. You'll see people go on stage, and they're from a place, and what they'll do is they'll talk about how shit it is. And I think there's a bit of sort of Brighton pride going on, not literally pride, obviously, but I mean, it's <laughs> in that much as, yeah, everyone turns up with feathers in their ass going, we're having a lovely day. But I, um, no, I mean, it's, there's a lot of people who are very proud of this city. They love how progressive it is. They love how forward-thinking it is. And so it kind of twists the comedy slightly because you, you can't really put the boot in, and you don't want to put the boot in. You're, you know, I'm pro-Brighton, the room full of people are pro-Brighton. We just talk about how shit crawly is. That normally works. I mean, it's... <laughs> Works better as well. A little bit of the ribbing, people portslade. Hey, so close to the action, can't quite afford it. You know, I am, uh, and it's just a bit of that, really. You know, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to kick down. And if you live in Brighton, there's loads of options. Um, <laughs> but you've been, you, I, I, you've been doing stand-up. You did Edinburgh it was in first nine, in the nineties, right? In 99, first time up to right. Edinburgh, uh, t um, doing as of a package show with a. Paul Foote and Veronica, McKen Veronica McKenzie. I don't know if Veronica ever done, gave up comedy about two, three years later. Paul Foote um, is still very niche, but he's excellent. Yeah. Um, and then 2001 did my first ever show, uh, and then I did about eight one-man shows. In that first Edinburgh, were you followed by a film crew? Is that right? Yes, it was really odd. It was, um, there was a Channel 4 show called Edinburgh or Bust, and what they wanted to do was follow uh, a kind of a really established comedian, uh, one who was breaking through and one who was brand new to show how Edinburgh worked. But they filmed it and when it went out, I wouldn't say in real time, but like they would film it and then it would go out a week and a half later. Right. So what they filmed me to show, what's it like for a new comic coming up to Edinburgh and no one knows who you are and you're desperately trying to get people through into your room but there's nobody there. 
But of course, because the programme was going on Channel 4, I was full every fucking night. So it was nothing like that as well. Like, Stephen, are you worried about no one turning up? No, because of you guys. Thanks. Um, and so every night we were full. And then, uh, but I was obviously nowhere near good enough to play to a full room. So everyone was sort of went, well, he's a bit shit. Yeah, watch the programme. It's about me being shit. Uh, um, so it took a little while to sort of catch up with how good, the, how many people came to see me. Um, that was, I remember it. I remember it. it was, that was back in the days when, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of satellite. And so if you were on a terrestrial TV channel, then people just watch you because the other four channels were shit. So, yeah. I mean, so we got great numbers and sort of numbers people would be mad about now. And the other two acts that were followed were Jason Byrne and Adam Bloom. Right. And what's interesting is it wasn't, it was Jason Byrne was the emerging act and Adam Bloom was the established one as right. well. So Jason's huge now as well. And Adam, obviously, a very established act. Um, but it was... They had this idea of these are the people we will follow and the, we'll follow their career and see how it goes. And I, um, yeah, I, I remember it being odd because I still had a day job as well. So they came and filmed me at my day job. But I hadn't told the people at the day job while they were filming me because <laughs> I didn't, hadn't told them yet whether I could ask if I could have four weeks off work to go to Edinburgh <laughs> yet. I, so they sort of filmed that. And he goes, what are they doing? And he goes, well, they're just sort of doing a documentary about people who've got hobbies. <laughs> I, um, and then they were just and they said, what do you think about Edinburgh? And I think, it's got a fabulous castle. Shut the fuck up! <laughs> um, and that was, yeah. That was, that was an and do you think year. it was, I mean, do, did, did it help or not? Because I, I remember everyone's feeling like a bit, you know, the other established acts who had been going for 10 years or 20 years yes. and never been on TV. No. And then you were turning up and being filmed. And, mm. and did you get any blowback from that or was it okay? Well, I, I think people were kind of, you know what comics are like. I do, that's, like, why I'm, that's why I asked the question. I think they were all, I think they were all, I think, I think I ingratiated myself with the comedy fraternity when they realised I wasn't anywhere near as good as you would need to be in order to have a film crow following you. So I think actually it flipped from being, why does he get this leg up into the industry so quickly to kind of like, oh, actually it might be a bit tricky when you're brand new with this level of expectation. But um, no, I thought oh, people on the whole work were okay. Uh, they only called me a, a wanker behind my back, so that was fine. So, um, <laughs> they did, they yeah, did. Yeah, they did. Uh, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> they did. But, I mean, it is, but Edinburgh's the worst time. Well, this interview, <laughs> 19 years of pent-up frustration <laughs> about you being in Edinburgh, watching me being followed by a film crew, going, who the fuck is he? <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I'm that. sorry for everything I've ever but, done. But you're in Brighton now, it's my town. But, but Edinburgh is where comedians are super like paranoid as well. Even yeah. comedians are mad and paranoid enough as it is anyway. It's, Edinburgh's weird though, isn't it? Because the two things that stop comedians actually earning a decent money is that we don't work every single day. I mean, you might, but I mean, like at the, the job in comic level. And we have to travel quite far to our work. Yep. In Edinburgh, the work is on our doorstep. We work every day and we lose more money than we do at any other time of the year. And we're sitting there going, well, how the fuck's this happened? You know, so then we turn up and all the rules of comedy get turned on their head. I remember going up uh, one year and there was a, was it Tony Law, Craig Campbell, and, um, and Dan, Dan Antopolsky yeah. had a, 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 a sketch show, the three of them. And the review in the, in the, I think it was in something like the Herald, said something like, um, it was, um, uh, yeah, uh, Fringe favourite Dan Antopolsky joined by newcomer Craig Campbell, right? And Craig Campbell had been going 30 years and had his own TV show in Canada and all the rest of it. And, and Dan was as going as long as me then, so that had only been three or four years. But in Edinburgh, all the rules go out the window. Everyone who's an established act, who's like a headliner else, is if you're not anybody out in Edinburgh, then, then you arrive as a new act. And if you're someone who's really established in Edinburgh but can't work anywhere else, then you're the belle of the ball. It's really yeah. odd, you know. 
watching Brendan Burns basically walk around with a crown and then it comes to September and everyone goes, no, I don't want to fucking work with you. <laughs> uh, um, and that, that would happen every year. There's kind of this, this sort of weird flip situation where it's, it's such a bubble. It's yeah. a brilliant bubble, but it's a bubble. Yeah, it's true. It's interesting. Mm. Uh, and I remember talking to you about you. You, you kind of you. I, I was thinking about doing a show about always coming second, and you did. A, you did that show. I should about show always called coming. second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was literally about you know the 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 logistics of um, uh, of of what it means to come second, whether we are a winner only society. I'm trying to be quite serious about it, looking at the psychological effects, and I was reading up um, psychological reports of people who retired from sport who'd only done the you know sports where the Olympics were the pinnacle and they got a silver, and whether that made they felt that they were successful or they're unfulfilled. And it turned out that the actual best thing to do was to come third, by the way, because you got on the podium, but you didn't feel like you'd only just made it. Because Silver gets that. So actually the bitterest feeling is silver. Yeah. Basically what I'm saying is if any of you are in the Olympics in the future and you're about to come second, hang back, come third, be happy for years <laughs> afterwards. Um, but then I did, I remember I was, but I, 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 I uh, explored all elements to do with second, including things like, the difference in it, very class-driven society in Britain about between first and second class. And I remember I, was, I did an experiment. I sent a load of envelopes out uh, with first and second class stamps to myself to see if they would get there first. Okay. And they all got there at the same time. <laughs> so it's, it's almost completely pointless. Actually, but what, as part of it, what I also did is I tried out at the same time to see how long it get there. I started writing just like things like a really smudged address. I'd write it in crayon. And in one of them, I just put a picture of me with the arrows just saying him into the address. Uh, and uh, but the, my favorite thing I found out was, was that uh, you could actually put sorry, no stamp and put no stamp on it. Uh, put any address you want on the front and on the back, put the sender's address as the address you want it to go to, okay? <laughs> and they would send it to that address <laughs> saying incorrect, insufficient postage. So if anyone wants to send a letter for free, <laughs> put any old shit on the front, put the address you want it to go on the back, and then don't put a stamp on it. <laughs> it worked. Sorry, Royal Mail, but you're fucked. Uh, <laughs> they, might, they might get wise to that now. It's a, that, the thing about the gold, the, the medals in the Olympics, because quite often what happens is people come fourth, mm. and then the Russians get disqualified. Oh, later on. Yeah, later on. And then you've won a bronze medal, but you didn't get to go on the podium. That must be... You see, you know, we're comics, so we're thinking you've got robbed of the podium. That's a yeah. good thing. I think a lot of athletes are just really good at running. I, th I think the bit when they walk up in front of everybody and get their medal, even though they've been working towards that, they must shit themselves, right? <laughs> because that's a bit like, kind of like, oh my God, I've got to go out in front of everybody now. Like, what have I got to do? You know, well, basically, nip down, get a medal, stand back up again. <laughs> but what I love as well is that those people get given the medals at their home, don't they? Yeah. There's got to be someone from the Olympic Committee whose job it is, is to knock on people's door and go, all right, do you remember Olga? <laughs> Apparently a bloke, have a bronze. <laughs> I, um, you know, and, and they've got to go around and do that. They've got to upgrade. And, and also, let's say the gold has been done you know, like they, they, they were a drugs cheat, which means the, the, what was the bronze is now the silver. They've got to go to the silver bloke's house, <laughs> hand them a gold and go, but can we have the silver? Because I've got to take it to that bloke over there now who was the bronze and then get the medal off them. So they've got to, so they'll know because they'll yeah. phone ahead, won't they? Yeah. Is your bloke coming around right now with a silver medal for you? Why is that then? <laughs> Olga, bloke. Uh, um, and then that's, that's what happens. Yeah. What if you spilt some soup on it or something? Oh, yeah. what, what if they... <laughs> Well, they sell them. A lot of them eBay them, yeah. don't you? Have you ever typed in Olympic medal on eBay? 
I have. There's always someone selling them because they've fallen on hard time. Yeah. I know. And you sit there and you think, what sports don't you have a job with afterwards? And the answer is archery. It's no fucking use. If this was the 16th century, these people would be gods, wouldn't they? They'd be like, I don't like him, not a problem. Now, it's like, what are we going to do? You're going to be a PE teacher. <laughs> Shit. Can't turn up with a medal. Run. I'm a fucking Olympic gold. You know, I'm going to do it. Anyway, so yeah, they sell them. So, but in the second show, was it also about the fact that, uh, my, if I've got this wrong, this is from a memory of a conversation with a long time ago, uh, that you were up for Top Gear, you're very close to getting in the, the original Top Gear. Yeah, yeah, I got down to, um, I mean, this is going to really test people's memory of Top Gear if you ever did watch it. <laughs> but before Richard Hammond came along, there was another guy who did about a series and a half, and he was like a, he was a used car dealer, and they wanted to get someone who was like a man of the people. And then they worked out that those people aren't very good at broadcasting. So he went, and then they wanted to replace him. So obviously they already had um, Richard Hammond and uh, Jeremy Clarkson, but they didn't have James May yet. So, so I, got, I was part of the auditions, going back many, many years, and I got down to the last two, me and James May. I did a day's filming with Jeremy Clarkson, did the cool wall, and all this sort of stuff. And it was, it, that was a brief moment. I don't let myself get ahead of myself. And I just thought, oh my God, this is like... This would be incredible. It was a life-changing job. And there was about five days after the last day of filming, I had four interviews. I had to go for aptitude tests. I had to go for my history to make sure there was anything that wasn't going to bring the BBC into disrepute and stuff like that. Something thinking, please find fucking nothing. Um, <laughs> and then I got a phone call from Andy Wilmans, exec producer of Top Gear. And I remember I was driving to a gig at the time. I had a friend with me in the seat. And so I had him on hands-free. So I couldn't, you know. And he said, hi, it's Andy here. And so Stephen, it's like, we've gone through all your tapes and we've chatted to the execs and whatever. And... Um, um, look, and I'm going to say this. We think you were the best person in audition, and we thought you were absolutely brilliant uh, with Jeremy. But the problem we found was uh, you were just a bit too similar in sort of style and sort of like outlook to, to Richard Hammond. Wow. Um, Double burn. Right, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. But, and these, here's the clincher here. He said, but if Richard were to ever leave the show... <laughs> We would really seriously like you to consider coming on the team. Fast forward nine months, right? I'm sat in front of the telly, and the news breaks. He's crashed a car at 210 miles an hour, landing on his head. And I'm thinking, I'm fucking in, right? I am in. <laughs> My life is changing. Now this, I can't, he survives. How unlucky can one man be? Unbelievable. 210 miles an hour landed on his head, right? People die falling downstairs. I mean, like, how is this possible? Yeah, so I didn't get it. it no. Unbelievable. I mean, it's great for his family and stuff, but... <laughs> Fuck's sake. Anyway, yeah. It's but that, that's show business all the way through. It's, you know, all these close court... The, the, you know, getting that job. I've, I've, I've auditioned people where you got down to two people and you basically can't decide, and it's, you know, and you'd make a decision. Yeah. And if you think, if that, if that job had been the office, and if that job had been, you know, Tim from the office, uh, <laughs> then that would be a life, you know, getting that job for Martin Freeman was, if it was up against him and another guy, that was like, imagine being that guy. You go, fuck, I could have been I was, Watson. I, and, um, I mean, you Stephen don't have Merchant, to. Stephen Merchant and Ricky came to see me. Oh, did they? <laughs> to, in the office. Uh, what's the name of um, Mackenzie Crook's character? Gareth. Gareth, yeah. Wow. They came to see me for Gareth. Wow. And they said, are you interested in doing it? And this is, and I'm not with her anymore, my agent, but I, I was the same agent for many, many years. And I phoned her up the other day, he said, um, 
I said, uh, Ricky Gervais and, and Stephen Merchant came to see me do an Edinburgh preview yesterday. They, and we spent 20 minutes talking after the bat, but they've got a, a TV pilot and they, they had a character that interested me. And I didn't know it was Gareth until after the event asked. And I don't think they even knew the name at that point because they hadn't done it. And she said, Stephen, I've heard about this. <laughs> it's a fake documentary about people in an office. Who's going to want to come home from a day in the office <laughs> to watch people working in an office? Don't go anywhere near it. It's the shittest idea I've ever heard, right? That was my agent. Second. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of thoughtful of them to care that. Most agents would go, well, let's try and get them the job. It doesn't matter if it's shit. At least we'll get our... No, no, she said, she said... No, but at that point, there was no money in it. At that point, they were, they were just... I, mean, I don't know if you remember, but, um, but Ricky made the office by virtue of actually recording just a piece of camera of himself talking for 10 minutes as, you know, in character and all the rest of it. And, and then that, they took it from there. And then, then it, was, it was the next step. They had a bit of budget and they were going to put together a 15-minute kind of like him in being in an office. Yeah. Uh, Glad I didn't get on that. <laughs> uh, yeah. It would have changed your life in terrible ways. It would have, it would have been, actually. It would yeah, have been absolutely. Pirates of the Caribbean. It would have been yeah, rubbish. <laughs> You'd own your own forest. He owns a wood, you know, now. Exactly, yeah. I wouldn't be able to focus on this audience. You know. My eyes would be too cross from being constantly fellated. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. Think, think, think of the benefits. No, genuinely, I'm not angry about it. I mean, I, I am always, I'm always grateful. I'm always grateful for the fact that they, they kind of considered me. Uh, and, and same again for Top Gear as well. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> well, I'm pretty angry because, you know, I could have had someone really properly decent famous. Really <laughs> Oh, excellent. <laughs> Arsehole move, but excellent. Uh, excellent. So, um, what well, I'm quite interested about you, I mean, you, you're obviously doing, you would, I mean, you do like more stand-up than most people would do just by doing your, yeah. doing that club. Yeah. Uh, and you, but you're also writing a lot of material, you write a lot of material for other comics, which doesn't do. get talked about very much because people no. like to pretend it no, doesn't No, I, I made that mistake earlier on when I was talking freely about which people I wrote for, and then it's, it's, it's kind of not really the done thing. Hmm. Um, I think a lot of comics... It's just the logistics of if you are a comedian and you're going to do a, a, an Edinburgh show and then you're going to do a tour, once you finish the tour, they want you to do your next tour, and it doesn't leave any time free to actually write another show. Yeah. You, know, like, you know when you get musicians, they say, oh, where have you been? Oh, I've been in the recording studio for the last five months, something like that. Well, comics can get other people to write their stuff. I mean, not... Right, as in literally, there you go, there's a show. There's a few comedians who do that, which I mentioned. Uh, but most of them will need to be sort of, you know, hand-in-hand hand working with somebody else saying, I've got this idea, can you develop it up and then give it back to us. So there's a, there's a fair bit of that. There's a fair bit of that for yeah. well-known comics. And there's a little bit of mentoring newer comics as well and then sort of taking people under my wing when they're new and then just sort of like showing them the ropes in comedy and sort of getting them up to speed and stuff. And I mean, it's, I you know, it. it's, it's, I think from your point of view, it's, it, both jobs are uh, understandably great and it's great to mentor people especially. But it is weird that way. You know, I, you know I'm quite old school about it and I, if, if I'm on a panel show, I always think, well, I should be coming up with my own stuff. I almost think I shouldn't be preparing too much. I should be ad-libbing my own stuff in a panel yeah. show. This is why I don't do many panel shows. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so there's all that pride of this is my show. This is, you know, someone might occasionally watch a show and go, how about doing their joke there? How about doing this joke? Which is what all comedians would do, right? If, you, if you're doing a set and, yeah. and a, a joke occurs to you and it's in someone else's routine, you go, here's a joke. But it's sort of, it's, I mean, it's odd that, does it, does that, does it, slightly great when you see other people getting laughs at your jokes or do you, or is it? No, I just, I, maybe it's, I'm not, I probably haven't got enough of an ego as a comic, to be honest with you. I, I see someone else doing my joke and it gets a laugh and I'm proud that it got a laugh. 
Um, and, I, and, and often I'm writing for somebody who is a completely different background and voice to me. So, you know, I, I will be, like, writing for... Um, oh, I can't really say their names. But, you know... <laughs> well, OK, fine, but they're going to be in their early 50s and, and black and gay. So, I, um, so uh, you know, I'm channeling my inner mid-50s black gay man and, yeah. um, and I'm doing jokes in their voice of things that have happened to them that not happened to me. Sure. And then, and, then, and then they'll get a laugh and I'll just think that's great because I've never been able to have done that joke myself. Sometimes I'll write for somebody and they'll say, that joke didn't work, do you want it back? Right. Okay. And then I'll think, right, but I did it in your voice, will it work in mine? And then I realise it's quite harsh. I mean, I wrote for... Um, Oh, okay, fine. I don't think he'll mind me saying, but I wrote for Simon Brodkin for a fair bit, doing Lee Nelson. And I heard a joke about, um, you know, when he, was, he, he got into trouble with his new wife really early on when he lost his wedding ring, uh, in another woman. Okay, and, um, and he said to me, I tried it, it was too harsh. And I thought, well, it's going to be pretty harsh for me, but then I'm quite <laughs> proud of the joke. So I, so I ended up doing it. Of course, people look at me as if to say, you monster, and so I'd have to drop it. So, so quite often that joke won't work for me, and, I, and, and it will only work for the people I'm writing for. Sure. Yeah. And you write, you know, you come up with a lot of stuff, obviously, if you're comparing. So if you're comparing the, the creator, do you, is it always different stuff? Are you, you, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of material that I'll be working through. But one of the reasons I've got away with not having to write for myself for so long is I'll talk to a crowd, I'll wait to see what they say, and I'll try and come up with something off the top of my head. And I've got fairly decent sort of pub quiz knowledge. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I know a, I know a little bit about everything. So I can usually find something on that that I think I can turn into something and come up with a joke. But most of the time it is just trying to think about it on the fly yeah. and then come up with stuff. And I, I try to be sort of quick and sparky, but it's also for my own benefit, otherwise I get bored. Sure. You know, if I was doing the same jokes four or five times every week in the same venue that I just drive <laughs> down the road to, then it would be a job, yeah. you know? And um, I mean, I'm looking at you guys and you've got jobs and I'd hate to be like you. I mean, <laughs> Just so, I mean, how do you live? How do you live? It's disgusting, isn't it? And most of them, them do IT as well, so it's oh, even right, worse. Right, right. It's even worse. Hey, that's my background. <laughs> it's a year 2000 consultant. Amazing job. Work dried up 19 years ago, but up until then, pretty fucking busy. So. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's... It, I suppose, you know, I write scripts that are for other people, like, you know, when you write sitcoms or whatever. So it's not, and I, I get it, mm. but you just, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of weird to think that there's this... It often, like, you know, I know a few comedians who do this, and you think, you know, you're a really great comedian. It's your it's time. turn. It's, it's your... time. It's not ability. It's time. Yeah. They just don't have the time. Yeah, yeah. They go, I'll get an email from somebody, and it'll be a page of ideas. I've got some stuff on this. Can you work this into material? And then I'll just send it back a day later. And sure. Go, great. Cheers. Yeah, but then why don't they do a bit less, you know, and let someone else have a go? There's so many people on TV who are in everything, and you kind of yeah. go, just fucking, you've got enough money, you've got enough exposure, let some other cunt have a crack. Let <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Grant, he's a cunt, let yeah, him have a crack. Yeah. Let, um, do you know what the weird thing is about it is? Is that is if they were to do that, I'd end up with less work, not more. So, because currently I'm writing for the people who want more money, uh, <laughs> rather than them handing over the work to people like me who could do the job. So as it stands right now, if they can continue to be quite so greedy, that would be amazing. So, um, yeah, it's just the nature of the beast, I think. I, I, uh, I, I know that 10 years ago, the idea of having another comic writing for a comic was weird, but no, it's just the norm now. 
I think it is. I mean, I'm sort of old school. And, you know, my old schoolness kind of blurs every now and again and I decide I've got to move into the modern world. But that, that one just feels... It just feels like you should be, to me. It's still fun. Look, especially with, like... I'm mean, not so much like a panel show and, like, gags mm. in a panel show, but, like, if, if you're writing an Edinburgh show or a, a show you're going to tour, it, should, it feels like that no, should I mean, be coming from... I, this is this, this, this new phenomenon in comedy called the director. Um, yeah. You know, I know directors exist in all forms of entertainment and have done for many years previously. But the idea is now that, you know, if you go out to Edinburgh, you have an, a director. And what typically is, is a comic who knows Edinburgh quite well, who watches over your show and just tells you what mistakes to not make. Yeah. And it doesn't change the content or the dialogue or anything. And that's the thing. I mean, there was that, I was talking to you just before we came on about the, uh, the BBC Radio Music Awards. And I worked on Jeff Norcott's show, which is uh, right-leaning, uh, right well-meaning, and uh, which got turned into a Radio 4 one-off which won the comedy award this year. Yeah. So, and, and Jeff phoned me up three days before and going, look, I think they've included me because they just wanted to show that there's some diversity involved because he's right-wing, which is about as diverse as you'll get on Radio 4, okay? And, um, <laughs> and, and, and all I did was take his story and add jokes into it. So it was, it was what happened in his life. I'm not about to say, hey, could you say this thing happened in your life instead because it's an Edinburgh <laughs> show. So just to try and make it funny and change the order of the words and stuff and make it just that little bit punchier, and then he was so sure he wouldn't win, he went off and did a gig, and he sort of left us there, and then he won. And I went up to collect it with two other people who worked on the show who I'd never met before, okay? Because all I did was actually write. I never got involved with the recording. And, um, and you know, it, was, it didn't feel like we'd cheated, but it was really weird because we were collecting the award for his comedy show that was autobiographical. Yeah. So it was like kind of like, you know, like, you know, we've really enjoyed working on this show. And by that, I mean, basically sitting next to the bloke whose life that we're collecting the award for. So, yeah. And, you know, maybe it's because like Morecambe and Wise never really wrote their own stuff. I think they might have written some of their stage stuff. And, you know, that, that's the thing. So you're thinking of it as an old school thing, but maybe it's a very 80s and 90s thing where people will suddenly... Had... I guess the point I was trying to make is you, you can still have a comedy show come from the heart and be very personal to you course, and yeah. have somebody else work. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, know. Um, and, and every comic to some extent does that anyway. When you go off and do a preview, you know, to 12 people in June before you go up to Edinburgh and then one of your comic mates comes along just to add numbers and then sits down after the pint going, oh, you should change that bit, you should change that bit. The difference is, is they're doing it for a, a day and you're paying them. Yeah, I mean, it's just the same thing. It's just a bit more effort. Good. All right. Well, um, you're wrong. Uh, it's enough. <laughs> you're, you've taught me around. Um, <laughs> I never, I never got anyone. To, I never got any, anyone, anyone to help on any of the shows that I wrote ever. No. Uh, all, all of those were completely myself uh, because I am tight. <laughs> and so therefore I wouldn't pay someone else to do it and, but I also agree with you to some extent but while other people are willing to pay someone to do it I'll take the work no I, I, I understand right. I understood all along I was just playing devil's I was playing devil's avocado yeah sure um, <laughs> let's talk about your uh, t horrific we had Angela Barnes on uh, last week who burnt herself with the hot water bowl yep. and you've also badly hurt your chest area I uh, have badly hurt my chest area. Thank you. I, uh, <laughs> did, um, did Angela... I mean, obviously, it's a podcast, but it was, it's been recorded live as well. Did Angela get her, her injury out? She got out? everything out. She, she showed us the lot. Out, did she? All around the nipples, the Nike thing around the nipples. Wow. Everything. Right. Should have come to the first one, mate. It was amazing. Because <laughs> he's about to get his out now, and you're going to regret coming to see this. Actually, no, mate. It's Brighton. It's going to be great. Am I right? Okay, just, yeah. Yeah. Um... <laughs> great when you disappoint yourself uh, <laughs> tell us tell us what happened <laughs> help me i was cycling to a gig 
uh, I decided uh, I was uh, been gigging with a friend there, and I gave her. A, I was seeing her two or three days earlier, so I can give you a bag of clothes that I can wear for the gig, and I'm going to cycle to a gig and uh, and I throw my bike in your car afterwards and go back afterwards because I fancy it's a summer's day. It's it's you know it's 55 miles, which is a nice distance to bike ride. And then she said, "Fine, yeah, whatever." And I'll see you there. And then I was cycling to the gig and. <sighs> When I drive to a gig, I have a habit of spending the, the last 30 minutes before driving there. And I'm, most comics will be the same, just going through in your head a little bit what you're going to say, um, which is perfectly acceptable to do in a car. But on a bicycle, you need a slightly more concentration. <laughs> and so while I was just basically muttering to myself under my breath what jokes I was going to be doing um, and going through the trees, well, not through, literally through the trees, but going down the road next to the trees, the shadows hid loads of potholes that I didn't notice. And then my front wheel disappeared into a pot. I was going fairly fast, about sort of nearly 20 miles now on the bike. And um, the back of it just trebucheted me over into the ground. And I hit the tarmac really hard, um, all of it on my shoulder. And uh, I remember little, it's a bit patchy because I came in and out of consciousness. The first thing I did was stop Strava because I don't want to reduce your average speed. I, um, <laughs> you want to be going fast when you crash, otherwise you look a pussy. I, uh, Second thing I did is I actually took a selfie with my good working arm um, because the likes were off the scale, Richard. And, um, and then I dragged myself off to the side of the road. Uh, then I think passed out. Then when I came to, a cyclist was coming the other way and the driver who was behind me had stopped and they were sort of checking on me and they collected all the bits of my bike that sort of like sort of fell off the road. Um, and they was on the phone to the ambulance man, or the 909 or whatever, and they were, they were describing me. So they had my phone and they were describing me to the person, the dispatcher, and they were going, yep, that's blue. Yep, that's blue. No, that's blue as well. It was pretty much all blue. And they looked at me and realized I'd woken up and they went, oh, they'll be here really soon and handed me the phone. And then I kind of like dipped out again. And when I came to, uh, I was basically woken up by a helicopter air ambulance landing in the field next to me which was very bittersweet, because at that point I was just sort of feeling just a bit confused, and there was that dawn, well, it was bittersweet, because there was a little bit, and they went, oh, fuck, I might die. But there was another part that went, well, I've never been in a helicopter before, so, you know, it could be a fun day. And um, they landed, and they ran out, and they sort of checked over me, and what I didn't realise is they were checking for shock. They were worried about shock, because shock is apparently the biggest killer in a road accident. But I wasn't in enough shock to get in an air ambulance. So they fucked off. And they just <laughs> sort of left me there waiting for a normal ambulance, right? Which feels like, feels like an Uber by comparison. And if I'd have known that, I would have feigned astonishment. And I'd be like, how is he? He's just so surprised, but put him in the chopper. And then they disappeared off, and then, and then the normal ambulance came up, and it was quite funny. They put me in the ambulance, and they put my bike at the foot of the little bed that you lie in the ambulance, and they had a strap that went round it. And I went, oh, that's useful. You, you can use a strap to put the bicycle in. And they went, yeah, we, we get a lot of bicycles in here. Oh, I went, oh, yeah, that, that might happen then. Um, and then they, they drove me to Worthing uh, General Hospital, which, I mean, it's just, I mean, I mean I, as soon as they wheeled me in, I brought the average age down by 20. And it was, you know, surrounded by people who'd had a fall. And I, um, filled me with, I mean, you know, painkillers. It's so weird, isn't it? You know, always hear about celebrities going, Oh, I'm addicted to painkillers. And you think, oh, get a proper dealer. And, um, but like, I'd never had proper decent painkillers before. They're, they're, have you ever had, like... No, no. They're incredible. They're incredible. <laughs> I, I can understand. The only reason why we don't all go and take painkillers for fun is because there isn't a drug culture to go with it. If you think about it, if you smoke dope, then you'll go to, like, an open-air festival. If you take coke, you know, you'll go to, you know, a, a, the races or, you know, or just 
a business meeting or something. I know <laughs> heroin, you're going to be in a den somewhere. You're ecstasy, you go to a rave. There's no drug culture to go with strong painkillers, is there? It's not like kind of like, oh, come around mine. We're going to watch Only Connect. It's really tricky, but I'll never get a headache. You know, that, that's like kind of like, hey, I'm on codeine. I'm going for a poo. Hold my hand. You know, I mean, there's, there's nothing, there's no drug culture with it. So I was on these painkillers and they're incredible. And then they, they x-rayed me eventually. And it uh, broken, it, uh, basically uh, broken it in 11 places my collarbone, it, um, I'd knocked my entire shoulder into my rib cage. And they were saying it's quite, cycling's a good way to get thin. And they're right, because I, I, I was two inches thinner in seconds. And <laughs> they pulled the thing back out and they said, well, look, the NHS don't really ever bother with uh, collarbones. They don't do anything. We wait to see how it heals. And they showed me the x-ray and it looked like a potato waffle. It was just all in different directions. So in the end, I had to get someone else to kind of strap it all up. And then, so I've got a, a metal... Uh, plate that starts my neck and goes all the way down to my shoulder, which holds it all together, which I'm going to do my best to show people. I don't know if you're squeamish, not a good time to look. I'm going to do my best. Very squeamish. Oh, yeah, I'm quite squeamish, but I'm more about blood and stuff. It's not well, still, no, there's no blood. It's not there's still no blood. bleeding. No, 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 there's no blood. <laughs> and then, uh, and so, I got, uh, it, it, was, it really stands out, and I got fed up telling people how I did it. So what I did is I got a tattoo put over it to explain the actual accident. <laughs> So, um, so that's for the benefit of all of you. That is a diagram of me coming off my bicycle, going down my shoulder. So, and that's the rule now. Uh, that's my first ever tattoo, and I got that in my early 40s. So any other tattoo will have to be to explain the injury that it's next to, um, which was a little bit worried, because two months later, I burnt my head really badly taking a frittata out the oven, which I thought... <laughs> Genuinely concerned I was going to have to get some kind of kitchen tattoo. Um, but yeah, no, it was that kind of moment of like, oh, crumbs, I might die. And then I had to have like about six months of physio to get all the movement back in my arm. And, um, and six months of going to, you know, do exercises every day kind of changed my life. And I kind of, so I've, so I've you know, I mean, that's the thing. I've lost about a stone and a half and, you know, I've got like loads fitter and healthier and I feel great and I appreciate if we were doing this podcast in America right now, you guys wouldn't be able to stop fucking clapping. <laughs> but, I, um, but this is Britain. You see someone a little bit thin and you sit there and you think, oh dear, probably stress. <laughs> I, um, in fact, actually, I'm in my early 40s. I bump into people that I haven't seen for a year and they've seen the fact that I'm loads thinner and they just go, thyroid? <laughs> I mean, that, it's like, you know, in your, in your 30s, if you lose weight, everyone goes, well done. Now they all think I'm dying. <laughs> Anyway, so that's that was. Uh, that I've was lost that. a stone and three quarters just by stopping eating chocolate and drinking. So you don't have to. You don't have to Is fall really off a bike. Yeah. Now they fucking clap. Now they clap. Anyone can have an accident, mate. <laughs> um, so. Uh, oh, all right, well done. Is that what it stands for? Richard Herring, less sugar, total prohibition. Oh, good. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad. Off the top of my head. There we go. Get clap for that. Fucking tough crowd. Anyway, um, so did you just choose to just block that out altogether? Yeah, well, I just, you know, I was, I was pretty. The secret to losing weight is get really fat first. Yeah, it is. Isn't so, it? Like, uh, Do you have a pair of original trousers you've held on to that you can take, you can put it's on? It's only from two months ago, so yeah, it's only three <laughs> months, so yeah, I still got, I still wear and wear. I can, I can get into some of my old clothes. I can't quite get into the, I did wear my. Uh, the suit. I was thin. I was thin about five years ago, and then I had kids. So is the suit really recent? This is this, this is seven years old. This this is when I got married. So I was fat. I was fatter than I was when I got thinner. All right. But this is this I'm, is on the way. Back I'm about to. the same weight as I was when I got married now. Right. But five years ago, which is 
you know, after yeah. I got married, mm-hmm. I, I, I got, I went down to. So uh, you've lost your baby weight then? Yeah, okay, I, then. I've got, I've got, I'm about halfway back to where I was at, at the best. So I, um, as we all do as comics, every now and again we have to get suits made if we're going to do corporate work or appear on TV and stuff like that. And you, you're always told, oh, go and get one tailored for you. Um, and I spent many, many years working uh, on Radio One uh, for writing, doing comedy, and they used to give me free record bags because, like, the record companies would give loads of freebies to the DJs, but they wouldn't bother with. So they had a box by the door that if you worked at Radio One, you could help yourself to it. So record bags typically, sort of fairly large satchels, and I always have them because I'm right-handed over my left shoulder. So five years of having all my stuff on my left shoulder, and this shoulder dropped, dropped, and dropped. And when I got my suit made up, the guy said to me, do you realise your left shoulder is nearly an inch and a half lower than your right? I said, no, no, I didn't. So they made the suit up so it kind of corrected it and looked great. But after I had my surgery for my collarbone, what I didn't realise is while I was under, the surgeon fucking corrected it, okay, right? So I'm now symmetrical again. And I went to, and this is literally about two months later, I went to put the suit on to go and do a show, and I went, fuck, it doesn't fit, what's going on? It doesn't fit correctly and all the rest of it. And I was having a, con- I met meet with the consultant, I went, did you correct me? He went, yeah, I thought it got knocked down as a result of the accident. No, that was years of getting it in the right place. So I had to chuck it away, I had, to, I had a really decent suit. I thought you said I had to get him to stamp on my shoulder a bit. <laughs> yeah, could you fuck the other shoulder, please? These, these suits cost three grand each, I'm not... Yeah, throwing these I away. Know, I know, it was, it had to pin it. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, when you lose a load of weight, you get rid of... That's the thing, um, you, you'll see sort of people, and I don't want to say women are much more sort of triumphalist about it, going, oh, it's great, you'll get a new wardrobe. If you're a bloke, you like your clothes. I'm gutted. <laughs> I'm looking at all these great clothes, sort of thinking, can I, so can I just shrink them? Can I put them in a 90-degree wash and hope they get smaller or something? It's, yeah, it's rubbish. So the accident hasn't put you off cycling, though? No, no, it's, I'm cycling. really addicted. Uh, I, 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 that's the thing, I kind of got into cycling as a way of getting fit. Um, well, actually, the honest truth was it was because uh, I was trying for a baby for quite a while, and uh, this is my late 30s, and I'd left it a little bit late. It's that classic middle-class thing of the middle-class people tend to... You know, people talk about infertility. It's almost entirely a middle-class issue because working-class people have children much earlier in life, whereas middle-class people more like to travel or, you know, or study or work on their businesses or get in a sound financial footing. And that's how IVF works, by the way, is it knows you've built up a fair amount of money over the last few years, <laughs> comes along, slowly claws it all away from you until eventually you've got nothing left, you're effectively working class and then conceive naturally. But I... Um, <laughs> um, uh, how do the doctors do it? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and when I was... We were trying for a baby, me and, and wife number two, and we... We were, it wasn't kind of working, and they said, look, the, the best thing to do for a bloke is to, is to exercise, keep your blood oxygen levels high, you know, and um, I said, right, okay, fine, good, that's what I'm going to do, and, 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 and I tried running, and it really hurt my knees, and I tried swimming, and I realised, like, I, I last swam when I was 15, I'm useless at it, and I thought cycling, that would be a good way to do it, and um, I mean, it's one of the jokes I talk about on stage, it's not strictly true, but actually, there is a, an urban myth that if you cycle loads, um, being on a bike saddle can kill up to 50% of your sperm, which was my, my go-to joke there is, I needed this information when I was in my early 20s, having sex with women for fun. <laughs> fabulous. They're going, oh, Stephen, don't let go of me. And like I said, don't worry, love, I cycled here. You know, I mean, I, was, um, I don't think it's an acceptable form of contraception, but I, uh, but yeah, I started cycling in order to get fit, in order to make babies. And, um, and then it kept going. And then, and then once I had the accident, I did loads of gym work to try and get the movement back. And so I, I stuck with it. And, yeah, but I, I, I love it. It's, uh, it's weird. It's, uh, today I went out um, an hour, two and a quarter hours and just over, I went over the, the South Downs four times, just up the top, down, back again four times. And, you know, and a lot of people go, that's mental, why would you do that? And I said, because at the end of it you feel good. Partly because it's over. 
I, um, <laughs> but also because, and people say endorphins, but here's the weird thing, right? There's, there's two sides of endorphins. You get the real kind of the Instagram type people are going, oh, it's incredible, I've done exercise, I feel amazing. But actually, uh, and you'll know this, a lot of comics, I don't want to say struggle with demons or something like that, but the problem about having a job where you've got a large chunk of the day free is you've got a lot of time to think about why your life is so pointless. And, um, <laughs> and um, what cycling does is it allows those sort of slightly darker thoughts to sort of like sit a little further away from your thought processes. Um, it, you know, for a lot of people, exercise is about feeling good. And for me, it's about not feeling bad. And I, I have felt the least glum and miserable since exercising ever. But it's not really an, ex it's not really an advert, isn't it? Hey, want to kill yourself? Want to go on your bike? Because after two years, you'll be slightly diminished in those feelings. Right, OK. Um, <laughs> But it's, but yeah, I mean, the endorphins work in two different ways. One of them is to feel good, but more importantly, it's the one to not feel bad. And that's absolutely why I do it. And you're doing, you've got a cycling podcast, which is not exactly for the, it's not a crossover podcast, I wouldn't say. As a non-cyclist, it was a little bit hard to Yeah, get. I apologise. Some of them will be a little bit technical. I do it with a girl called Raya Hubble. She's a, a triathlete and an Ironman athlete. And it's quite good because obviously sometimes you've got a male-female podcast. And the voices, and they're thinking, oh, is one of them just an auxiliary voice? But actually, she's the proper athlete. She's the one who trains. She's got, like, a coach. She's, uh, you know, she came second in the European Aquabite. But she's, she's mad, and she's funny, and she's a laugh. And so the two of us have been mates for ages, and I suggested, well, we should do a podcast about cycling. But I'm the enthusiast, and she's the athlete. But we do do podcast episodes that, if you have a look at it, it's called The Cyclist Pod, where it is just for everybody, like, like how to get into cycling. And also we do an episode, I think it's episode 25, which is just called Sex, 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 which is basically deals with are cyclists better or worse lovers? And um, you have to listen to it, but it's pretty <laughs> offensive, to be honest with you. I, uh, uh, but, it's, but it's funny. And the thing is, uh, we found that cycling is hugely popular, but it's very dry. People take it very seriously. And I wanted to just add a bit more of a laugh to it. Um, and that, I, think, I think comics, I mean, your podcast is brilliant, but all comics who do a podcast tend to be quite good at it because they're just naturally funny. And when a comic talks about something they really know a lot about, like Jim Smallman talking about wrestling, you know, or even um, like Alistair Beckett-King talking about laws, and you know, L-O-R-E-S, that is, instead of actual laws. Though, though um, there is another um, one as well. Uh, there's another comic, a Northwest comic, who does one about actually quirks of the legal system. When a comic has got a, a knowledge about something really specific but does and then talks about it in a funny way, it's, you know, it's, it's as closest as you'll get to Edinburgh without being in Edinburgh yeah. to find a subject. Because every comic goes on stage and does things that they want the audience to hear. And that's why Edinburgh is so popular, because it's an, a, a month of them going, no, I'm going to talk about what I want to fucking talk about. Um, and typically, it will be something that they're quite anal about. And that's why podcasts are great, because you get to vent that off the rest of the year. Well, it's, the, it's, it's the autonomy. I think stand-up really has that. And a lot of stand-ups are, are, like, so so autonomous, they can barely work with other people as well. So some, mm. I think... Some comedians it wouldn't work for, but it is that, you know, the beauty of a podcast is you can do whatever you want. And I, we just briefly said this backstage, but, um, you know, with a, cycling, with a cycling show, if you went to the BBC and said, I want to do a cycling show mm. that's going to go out every week, and, you know, people, they'd go, well, it's probably too niche. But actually, as a, as a podcast, it's perfect because you've got the whole world as your audience and every cyclist will yeah. listen to it. So it's... it's yeah, well, um, what's, what's weird about it is there is cycling shows that do go out on the BBC. There's one called, um, um, it's, uh, there's, there's quite a few actually. But, but they're all about the pro world, about what's happening in the Tour de France yeah, yeah. stuff like that. And we're talking, we're talking about having a laugh on a bike. We're talking about, yes, going as fast as you can and doing events and things like that, but having a laugh. It's got to be fun first and competitive, well, not second, like 
fifth, sixth or seventh or something like that. And so that was our, our niche was for the enthusiast rather than the kind of the, the sporting fan. But, um, it, yeah, it'll all change. It will all change. I mean, podcasts are to radio what Netflix is to television. It's just where the future will be. Yeah. And, you know, you guys know what you like and then you're listening to the thing you like. And as for comics being autonomous, it's perfect, isn't it? Because we get to choose what we say. We choose what goes out. I mean, not all of us are quite so control-driven that afterwards we're selling our own merchandise to people <laughs> in, the, in, in the lobby. I mean, that would be just taking it too far. Most of us would have someone else do that for us. But, you know, it's... <laughs> But, you know, I mean, like, we don't have to control every part of the process. I mean, but... you would have to pay them, though, right? And then that cuts into your overheads. So. Oh, good point. Oh, yeah. right, okay, fair enough. Good point. I hadn't thought about that. I am tight. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, it is, that's, that's, the, that's the, uh, the thing about it, I suppose, is that, like, a lot of TV is, you know, it's someone else coming up with ideas and then trying to find the person to put it in. And the comedian just comes up with the, is his own, you know, is his own business or her own business, doesn't need that other person. So in a way, that gatekeeper is, is, dilutes things. Some, it, sometimes it works. Though. I'm not saying it never works, but a lot of the time, it's get, it's, you get someone who isn't that creative deciding what the show will be and putting someone who, if you'd said to them, you write this, come up with an idea for a show and put it on for me, it would be a better show, I think. Yeah. My, my worry is, though, is because, I mean, the, the more successful podcast and yours is really established is it, obviously you've got advertisers and, and you're... I worry that you'd have to actually control what you say because it would upset an advertiser. Like we've already on our cycling podcast lost an advertiser who listened to the show and said they were worried we were too rude. And, and they are a well-known bicycle cleaning company who, who, whose actual kind of catchphrase is filth. Okay, right? And they have T-shirts with the word filth written on it. And they said we were too dirty. Right? And I just thought we were a marriage made in heaven, you know. But, but I always think that the, the, the price you pay for doing whatever you want and saying whatever you want is commercially you are going to be less successful. Yeah, but it doesn't, you know, but I think it, it's true. And, but I th and, I, and I think that is the problem that podcasting is now becoming mainstream and... That, yeah, that my, what I loved about it was you could do whatever you wanted and that's what actually was the appealing thing to me in the first place. I didn't care about everyone else said, but you're not making any money. What are you doing? You're not making any money. And I, I said, I literally don't care mm. about making money. I'm doing what... I'm putting the stuff out that I want to put out and that's all I care about. But I think that's... For me, that's it. If anyone comes and says, you know, we, you can't do exactly what you want in this podcast if, you, if we're doing a little yeah. advert in it, then I'll say, well, okay, we, went ahead. we don't want the advert. It's no, I think it's brilliant. I think it's great as well because you get a little tap into people's brains and see what's chugging around as well. And it's, it's odd as well because, you know, quite a lot of being a comic, people think, oh, are you really funny on stage? And then you must be, like, really quiet and dark, the rest of it. But with a podcast, you're talking a lot. Yeah. It's a lot, isn't it, as well? So you're kind of, like, having to be funny a lot of the day. Yeah. And um, it's, it's nice. It's a release. I, I kind of... The, the idea of being funny in a room on my own or with, with just or with another person, the host, without... I mean, you guys got an audience here as well. It's weird for me. I mean, I tell you what's really weird as well, is I've only done one live version of my cyclist podcast, and I was petrified, because I was going to meet the people who listened to it. And I thought, I've been nicely shielded from those people for yeah. years. What if they're, like, like properly fucking mental yeah. like you know like off the scale like because then you see as soon as you see like you you've done loads of live shows yeah. you know what your audience looks like so when you're recording it not live do you ever doesn't do doesn't make me any happier though steve you see <laughs> <laughs> you're just describing my life here. 
Do you ever do any non-live podcasts? Or are they all live now? Uh, I used to, but the, these this this one is always. I do um, I do uh, stone clearing. That's not. That's not <laughs> play myself a snooker. That doesn't usually have an audience. Can you close? Do you close your eyes when doing it, and you can see the people at home or in their cars or walking? I try not to think about them for those podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really I really fear for who those people are. No. Um, no, 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 but it was about, you know, it's that thing when someone comes up to you and goes, I'm listening to you now. That's, a, that's, the, that's the sort of weird, uh, the weird element. Well, I, um, the, the problem I've got with so many people having seen me in Brighton is that for some reason the comedian is really popular with first dates. Right. And I get loads of people saying, I went on my first date to comedian and we're now getting married, so we thought it'd be brilliant if you could come along and do some jokes at the wedding. And you've always got to explain to people why it's a slightly different environment to a comedy <laughs> club. And I always go, are they going to be sat? No. Are there any old people? Yes. Are there any children? Yes. Am I coming on after speeches in which people say how great love is? Yes. Well, there are five reasons <laughs> why it will not work. And, and the only times I've ever done it is when they've thrown so much money at me and I've gone, Ryan, I'll ruin your big day. You fucking pay for it. Because comedy, if I have a bad gig, it's a bad day at the office. But if you ruin someone's wedding, yeah. you've ruined the be- work, biggest day of their life. But I know loads of comics who will happily do it, who will absolutely <laughs> stink the place out, grab the money in a lovely crocheted envelope, say thank you and fuck off out of the venue. <laughs> Astonishing. But yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, it's like you say that you meet, I get people coming up to me telling me about their stories about when they were at Comedia because, and, and what the worst one is, and this is, <laughs> you're going to like this, this is a comics joke, is I have people come up to me after a gig and they go, oh, Stephen, really enjoyed the show. It's great to see you're still here, right? Because I used to come here when I was a student and like 10 years ago and you were the compere now and it's good to see you because I've always loved your stuff even when I was a student. I go, what do you do now? And they go, oh, right, well, I'm managing director of my own digital marketing. So we've got <laughs> 18 offices, four of them in LA and stuff like that. Yeah, I just, uh, you should come up and visit us. We've got a farm out in sort of West Sussex. Well, some of it's in West Sussex, some of it's in Surrey. And, uh, and you sit there and you just think, right, so while I've been plugging out the same stuff, you have gone from student to literally world authority, you know. And, and there, that's the thing, isn't it? And they always turn to me and they just go, why aren't you on the telly? And I just go, because Richard Hammond lived. Um, hey, we're, we're, we're approaching the end of the podcast. Oh, right. But, you know, we, yeah, fuck that. Fuck time. Hey. We'll do another three minutes. Um, <laughs> I haven't done any emergency questions. We did some backstage for the, uh, if you're a badger you can, or a bit of drips, you can watch the uh, backstage videos I do with it. Pretty much everyone. Right. Uh, but so we'll do a few. I'll do, again, I did some early ones in the, in the just because we're on tour. Uh, these people, you know, have never seen me ask these questions live. <laughs> and I'm so excited, you won't believe. Um, uh, would you rather have a tit that dispenses talcum powder? This is a well-known one, isn't yeah. it? No, they're just mentally ill. <laughs> they just, I just tapped in to Brighton sexual <laughs> kink there. Hey, that's what I like. How did you know? Or a finger that can travel through time. So you've got a, you've got a, not a nipple. Not the rest of you. Uh, it will be attached to you, but only the, tri- only the finger can travel. So you'd, there'd be a wormhole. You'd push your finger through and then... Your finger would, from your perspective, you could probably just peek around and see what's going on to give you uh, right. your fingers in the past or the future. Right. Um, <laughs> but you're still here. You're still here. Kind of feeling this hasn't been thought through. I know I've thought through. I just really drifted off for a second. 
haven't, I haven't done this question for a while. This is a golden oldie. So you could poke someone or, or flick something, but you couldn't do much more. You could play Sabutio against someone. You could really ruin someone's Sabutio game. I've gone through to the 70s. Uh, right. uh, uh, but you could go anywhere, in the past or the future. Push the very heavy buttons on a transistor radio. Yeah. Right, okay. You know, right. poke someone. I, I think the, the fingers, I, I, the idea of time travel is brilliant, but if it's only down to my finger, I feel like I'm not getting the full effect. Well, you know, it's, do you want it or not? I think it's, like, it's your finger or nothing. I think a. Uh, no, I, I think from the point of view of party trick, the tit that can dispense talcum powder. Yeah. Yeah, because the thing is, it's both actually useful and also memorable. It's Cause, true. Because people would go, like, have you met Stephen Grant? Oh, what? Stephen Future Finger Grant? <laughs> no. Have you met Stephen Grant? What? Stephen Tit Talcum Grant? Yes. All right. I think it's just got a little bit more panache. Okay. So Tit Talcum. Well, I think you might be the first person to ever. <laughs> um, I like this is this is for a comedian. This is probably a, Go a, a, a good question. What is the worst experience you've ever had in a hotel? Okay. There must be a lot. I mean, as soon as Oops. I thought that, I, I, I'm thinking about Michael Fabry's one, which is one of the best ones of the stories of the world. I mean, he, anyway, I'll yeah, get him on. I'll get him Bring, on. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, it, we're not censored, are we? No, you can say anything you want. Okay, so I'm staying in an incredibly cheap hotel in Norfolk, okay, uh, back in my previous job. And... Um, it's one of those ones where there's a restaurant, but I get a free meal with it because I'm paid for by a client because I was back in my engineering days. And I ordered something with prawns. I and mean, that was the last time I ate prawns, as you're about to find out why. <laughs> and, and I remember when the food was ready because you could hear the ping from the microwave when you were uh, there. And they gave it to me, and I got some of the worst diarrhoea I've ever had in my life to the point where I couldn't make it from the hotel bed to the actual ensuite. Yeah. So I just... Destroyed everything: bedding, <laughs> carpets, uh, the actual, the, the the main toilet, the shower, and all the rest of it. And I was supposed to be working eight o'clock the following morning, and I was like, it's four in the morning, and I basically was. It was like the ending from Slumdog Millionaire. It was like, I mean, it was just, it was just a thing of horror. And I remember thinking, well, I mean, how do you, I mean, pick up the phone and say, I'm sorry, I've heavily shat the entire room. Um, <laughs> Uh, it is now uninhabitable, and I now need to die, please. But I was so ill, I couldn't do anything. So I phoned up and I said, I need a doctor. Uh, so they could get a doctor in, and they said, well, can we come in and check on you? I went, no, you can't. And, so, and they said, the doctor can't get you till two o'clock. I didn't have any food or anything, so I just basically drank water out of the tap and shat myself <laughs> for 12 hours. And when the doctor came in, the doctor said, I can't see you in here, it's too horrible. And, and, <laughs> And I went, you've got I to tell I literally can't see you, I can't <laughs> see you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, uh, and I said, look, you've got to, because by then I was a bit better, uh, but I had no opportunity to clean anything up, and um, yeah, I've, got, I've taken your question quite literally, haven't I? Yeah. I uh, a right. lot of people will have a funny story about bringing a no, girl back, good. and it's all a bit good. weird, and it turns out they're related, <laughs> and oh, what shall I do? Uh, no, no, I just, I, I mean, I, uh, I think the worst thing that happened was, is that I tried to, clean everything as best as I could. And I rolled up the, the, the bedding and everything like that and just into, into bag. And I asked them to give me some plastic bags and stuff and said it was like, obviously I had a few accidents and stuff. And I was in my late 20s then and it's, yeah, I mean, like, it was awful. I mean, it's just so bad. Um, it was their prawns, their fucking fault. Anyway, and, <laughs> and then I rolled everything up and I realized uh, my keys <laughs> and the television remote control. <laughs> 
we're in the role of the duvet and I was going to have to dig it back out again. And I, I genuinely phoned the RAC to find out how much replacement keys <laughs> rather than dive, dive through my own uh, sort of feces to get the keys wow. out. Wow. Yeah. Do you know what? I've told virtually nobody... What is it about? <laughs> you know, there are... I don't think either wife two or one know that story. <laughs> to be fair, that's, that's trying to keep them. Um, yeah, so yeah, that was probably my worst ever story as yeah, well. That's yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> we can't rescue this, can we? I, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll ask another question, see if we can... Uh, Bring you know, I'm very tempted to end the podcast. <laughs> and in fact, just delete the rest of the podcast and just put that out. <laughs> I'm, without me even asking the question, I'm going to put... I'll use a different question. Go, Wait, why, sneaky why, you that you won't why make it is it? Why are you telling me this? What is wrong with you? I didn't ask that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's going to be hard to beat. Does anyone want to share a hotel room with me? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Everything just seems awful now. Um, all right, I'll ask you question 714 if you're following at home. I mean, you know, it's pointless asking, but here we go. Have you ever suckled on the dugs of a barren old woman? <laughs> the dugs. The dugs. The dugs. Oh, the dugs. It's, the dugs is the sort the of dugs. Shakespearean word for... Yeah, a, and I believe barren. in the Shakespearean times, uh, the, the sort of barren uh, women would sometimes suckle children with their ancient dugs. <laughs> I believe. <laughs> I think I might have just made that up, but... Define old? <laughs> That'll do. Uh, <laughs> look, it's been lovely. What have you got? Have you got a, a stuff coming up? Are you going to be doing... Well, it'd be lovely if people had a go at the Cyclist Pod podcast, even if you're not a cyclist. There are episodes that you can enjoy, so have a look at episode uh, 25. There's also one called Running as Shit, uh, which, which we just basically put the boot in on running. So if you don't enjoy cycling and you don't enjoy running, you'll enjoy that. Um, and uh, other than that, then no. I mean, realistically, I'm just doing my comedy and doing my stand-up. And if you want to hear my jokes, they're being done by much more successful comics <laughs> on tour uh, um, right now. But no, genuinely, uh, that's, uh, be, you know, uh, just follow us on Twitter, I suppose. Yeah. You know, do people still... Is, it, is that a dying medium? Is it dead by the time I this goes I think it's okay. Out? Twitter's doing okay. It's all right, okay. You yeah. can follow me on Instagram as well. Instagram I mean, face-tune it to fuck. I look 28. I, um, <laughs> but no, I, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, um, listen to the Cycling Spot podcast and follow us on Twitter and maybe Instagram. Well, thanks so much. I've been trying to get you on for a long time, Stephen, and it's yeah. fantastic to do it in your hometown of many generations of grants. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Grant! <laughs> one of yours. How do you like them sky potatoes? <laughs>